have three uh, very passionate speakers in their different ways. Our first speaker is Ronnie Khan. Ronnie Khan is the founder and CEO of Oz Harvest. This charity was established in November 2004 for the purpose of making a significant contribution to society. Stunned by the amount of waste, I'm sorry, stunned by the amount of food wasted by the hospitality industry, Ronnie decided to do something about it. Inspired by City Harvest, a charity that had been operating successfully for over 20 years in New York, Ronnie brought the food rescue model back to Sydney, backed by the Macquarie Foundation, which provided the initial funding, and Goodman, which provided the first Oz Harvest van and out office space. I think, like me, you've all seen the yellow Oz Harvest vans around this city. Ronnie was instrumental in changing the existing legislation across four states that had prevented food donors from supplying excess food. Oz Harvest collected and delivered its first meal on the 3rd of November 2004, almost 10 years ago, and, its, and in its first month delivered 4,000 meals to 14 shelters using one van. Oz Harvest now delivers 480,000 meals a month with a fleet of 21 vans to more than 500 charities across Sydney, Wollongong, Newcastle, Adelaide, Brisbane, Melbourne and more recently in the Gold Coast. Since its inception, over 20 million meals have been delivered to women, children and men in need, while also having rescued over 6,000 tonnes of food from ending up as landfill and waste. Ronnie, she's an inspirational leader of a great organisation. Please welcome Ronnie Khan. So I too would like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora land on whose land we meet today and pay my deep respects to their elders past and present. It's a huge privilege to be here because food and ideas and, and getting together with people is really what we are all about. Eleven years ago, I had a little idea. And quite honestly, if you had asked me, I knew that it was important. I knew that actually exactly what Oz Harvest would look like. But I'm going to correct some of Bill's facts and figures because even if he got them off our website a couple of weeks ago, we were actually delivering between 550 and 800,000 meals a month now. And we've delivered over 28 million meals since we started 10 years ago. So it is extraordinary, and I think the exciting thing is how one person's idea can grow to be something that actually has changed the way that a country behaves. Because 11 years ago, there was no awareness about food waste. And there was no talk about food waste. And nobody was collecting, rescuing, or redistributing, repurposing perfectly good food that was going to waste. And so, really, it took a year to get Oz Harvest up and running. Um, I thought it would take a month. In fact, I thought it would take a couple of weeks. Once I knew what I needed to do, as Bill mentioned, I went to the States once I decided that the way I would fulfill my purpose was by capturing surplus food and delivering it to people in need. And I saw that because I had and was in the hospitality industry and was actually creating huge amounts of waste every single day by producing magnificent events where good food was the magnet and the attraction around which 
the corporates or those people who'd hired me to put on the event were to be shown off in the best possible way because food is about connecting, is about sharing. And in order for me to show that my clients who'd hired me to put on a great event which were shown off in the very best way was for me to show abundance and generous by having masses of food. And so every day I kept seeing surplus food go to waste. And every time when I could, I would take that food to the one charity, one agency that I knew on my way home, and it was quite confronting. So that little idea of purpose and of deciding to do something significant has turned into something significant. And we did have to have the laws amended in order to allow some of the big players, the supermarkets, when they started showing interest and they needed to be sure that by giving away their good food, they, they would not be liable. And so in 2005, we had the Civil Liabilities Amendment Act in New South Wales. We had it passed in the ACT in 2008 and Queensland and South Australia in 2009. So I guess, yes, those 21 vehicles that you see running around the city, not all in Sydney, but as Bill said, around the country, is the manifestation of one person's persistence in me deciding that this is what I was going to do and being a little bit like the Pied Piper because I guess if I ask each and every one of you, and I will ask you all, did anyone ever say to you when you were growing up, eat your food because there's someone starving somewhere? Yeah, I'm just getting a huge, you just become part of my universal truth. And, and that's really what happened when I said I was going to start a food rescue organization. I was a little bit like the Pied Piper because everybody just said, what can we do to be become involved. And so we started off with food rescue and that still is absolutely our core purpose and our core mission. But we've actually grown over the years because when an idea starts, it needs to be allowed to grow and develop into whatever direction it is supposed to grow. And so for us, food rescue is core. But what I've realized along the way that education is absolutely crucial in order to shift and change and make sure that we are providing the absolute best we can be. And, and what I mean by that is our whole purpose has grown and we now say that we are here to nourish our country. And if we're going to nourish our country, there are a whole lot of ways we need to do that. And we do that in three ways. And the one is by rescuing surplus food, because good food goes to waste. Eight to ten billion dollars worth of good food is going to waste every year in this country. But we are, Oz Harvest is now ten years old and quite honestly I want to be standing here in ten years time telling you that very little millions of dollars are going to waste in good food. And in order for me to be able to say that we had to bring in our next stream which is education. Because Unless something shifts, I thought when I started Oz Harvest, I thought within a few years I will make us redundant. That we will collect all that surplus food that's out there 
and then there will be no more food. But clearly, eight to $10 billion worth of food is a lot of food. And clearly, there is a reason that this is happening, and each and every one of us has got to take responsibility for that huge amount of good food that goes to waste. So our second stream, our first is food rescue, and our second is education. And in order to shift the way that all of us think, our education arm concentrates on three different things. They are three programs. One is Nest, one is Nourish, and the third is actually just consumer con community and how we educate each and every one of us to change. So to that end, we've become the partner of the United Nations Environmental Program. And I'm not sure how many of you were around on the 21st of July, two Mondays ago, where we held an event and we were lucky to have Prof. Bill on our panel because that event fed, well, fed 10,000 members of the public a free meal using rescued food to raise awareness about food waste. So it is crucial for us in our role as educators to bring to your awareness that good food should not go to waste and that there are ways that each and every one of us can shift and make, change our behavior so that that amount from eight to 10 billion starts going down because that is what we are now committed to. I'll briefly give you some tips afterwards about how you can do that. But our second education stream is called NEST, and it's about bringing nutrition, education, sustenance training, or nice, easy, simple tips to vulnerable people so that they, too, can understand and learn how to live better, eat healthier, purchase good food on a budget, and not waste food, and use their surplus in a better way. So that program is rolling out around Australia. We, we, we're delivering that to the charitable organizations where we deliver food. We're offering this program. And there's some wonderful and exciting examples of how it's working. So very briefly, just a tiny little example. Um, we took that program to the street uni in Liverpool, where there are vulnerable kids who go and learn and do wonderful things through that organization, the Ted Knox organization. And we did six modules of our NEST program, and they loved it. And this particular group of kids, 16 to 18 to 20-year-olds, had also just started a hip-hop hip group and were chosen and won a competition and were chosen to go to L.A. As we speak this week, they have been sent to L.A. to participate and compete. And at the end of the NEST program, they turned around and said, we do not want to stay in a hotel in Las Vegas. What we want is to stay in an apartment so we can put into practice what we've learned, how to cook, how to shop. And we had to prepare them a whole module on the difference between shopping in Australia to shopping in America, cilantro being coriander, grams to ounces. And so they went with their pack and insisted on staying in an apartment. So these are habits that change and make these kids, if these kids now are not buying Maccas and are taking their $9 and are buying veggies to create stir-fry, this is a good thing. So that is our, why education is so important, why each and every one of us has to change every time we see a fruit or veg that is a weird and wonky shape 
or with a slight blemish when we buy that, yes, it might be in the long run one less apple or vegetable that Oz Harvest will pick up. But by then, hopefully, we will have trained all our people so that they too are buying better. So our NEST program, our Nourish program starts next week, which is about taking vulnerable youth, kids off the street, and providing them with training, education, in hospitality, in cooking, in chefing, to provide them with a pathway to employment. And so, again, it is about educating so that those people's lives get shifted and that they will not always be needing our help. It is about making ourselves redundant in some way. And thirdly, what Oz Harvest is all about is engagement, is community. It's about connecting. We connect food with people in need. We connect people in need with potential jobs. We connect people who are looking for purpose, who come and work with us and act as volunteers and as ambassadors and who share what it is we're doing and get our message out even further. Very briefly, I just want to share with you that our most exciting measurement right at the moment we had our SROI measured, our social return on investment, for those of you who are not familiar with that term. And for every dollar that's invested in Oz Harvest, currently we can deliver two meals to vulnerable people. But we had Bain & Company, the international consultancy firm, measure our social return on investment. And for every dollar that is invested in us, we can, right now, we provide $5.68 of goodness back to society. So that's quite an incredible um, measure to know that when people invest in Oz Harvest because we're completely philanthropically funded, that money is returning $5.68 back to society. For those of you that are interested in knowing how that works, that's the map of what the inputs are and the outputs are in order to reach that. And for those of you that are interested and who think that annual reports are the boringest, most awful things, not if your annual report looks like this. <laughs> and so yeah, I will have one here for any of you that would like to have a look at it. So basically, I just want to share with you that each and every one of us have ideas, and a lot of us may or may not think that it's ever worth acting on. I'm here to share with you that if your idea is something that might change the lives of somebody, of one person, then it's incredibly important. And don't knock it, and don't think that you can't succeed, and don't listen to people who tell you you can't succeed, because it is all about each and every one of us, I believe, making a difference to one person or to a million people. It starts with one, and it's the ripple effect. And I'm going to end with just a tiny little parable and, and I think you'll like it. Anyway, it is during the Depression, and a man is walking home again after weeks of not having work. His wife and kids are at home, and it's just another day, and there's no work, and it's another day of going home with nothing. And as he walks home, he looks down, and on the ground, he finds a shiny silver dollar. And with that dollar, he runs to the bakery, and buys as much bread as he can with half a dollar. And with the other half a dollar, he runs to the flower little seller on the corner and buys the biggest bunch of flowers he can 
And he is so excited and he hops and he skips and he jumps and runs all the way home. And he gets to his house and he bursts open the door and there are his wife and children standing there. And they see the bread and they grab the bag of bread and they start tearing at the bread. And then his wife lifts her head up and she sees the flowers. And she says, are you absolutely mad? You find a little bit of money and you go and spend it on flowers? And he looks at her and he says, my dearest, the bread is in order for us to survive. But the flowers are to make it worthwhile. I hope each and every one of you find what it is that makes your lives worthwhile. Thank you. Thanks, Ronnie. Fantastic. Our next speaker is Dr. Brian Jones. Brian's a senior lecturer in horticulture and plant science here in the Faculty of Agriculture and Environment at the University of Sydney. After completing his degree in horticulture, Brian moved to France with his wife and four kids to do a PhD in plant molecular genetics. Combining his interests in basic science and horticulture, Brian has spent much of his career in Europe working on fundamental biology and molecular breeding. Now back in Australia and thankfully here at the University of Sydney, Brian continues to work on improving yield capacity in crop species through the application of molecular genetics, but having recognised that it makes little sense to incrementally improve yield capacity while we waste 40% of our food, uh, Brian is also investigating the contribution that urban food production and food waste minimisation can have on the sustainability of the food system. Dr Brian Jones. Thank you, Bill. Okay, some facts and figures. So what do we waste? Many of you here will have read the more than, or some of the more than 1,200 reports that have been done since Ronnie started her work into food waste in Australia. So many of you will know these facts and figures, but we'll go through them for those that don't. So what we do waste is about, globally, about a third of all the food that we produce is wasted, so not consumed. And all of the inputs into the production of that food, all the human energy and all the physical inputs are clearly wasted when we waste the food. So for me, looking at the same, a similar sort of uh, human endeavour, um, if we, for example, uh, tore down every third house we built or immediately destroyed every third car we produced, we clearly wouldn't accept that. But Basically, that's what we're doing. All these inputs, all this human energy into producing food and throwing away immediately one-third of, of what we're producing. So here in New South Wales alone, we seem to throw away about 1.1 million tonnes of food every year, a, a completely ridiculous amount of food. And it costs us directly from, household, uh, from householders throwing away food that they've purchased. So there is good reason to think about it and to think about what we're going to talk about here tonight. So just some of the figures, and these are global figures as supplied by studies done by the Food and Agricultural Organisation of the United Nations, a body whose research that we can respect and um, believe. And so I just go through the various categories and see the, little, the reasons why these foods are wasted or where they're wasted. So cereals, for example, in North America and, 
and here. So basically we're included in this category here and you can hopefully see on the screen, the colours aren't very clear, I suppose. But um, consumption includes waste at home and everything else is basically part of the system. So either in agriculture or when the food leaves the farm until it reaches your plate. So things like cereals, you can see here, 30% globally are wasted and uh, most of that waste, at least in developed countries like Australia and the US, is wasted once that food gets to our home. So they've, th these figures are from the FAO and they've put little factoids on it which seem a bit ridiculous um, because I don't think it is 763 billion boxes of pasta is the reason for this 30% loss. But it's to give us some idea of the enormity of the issue globally. Food and pulses, a little bit less that we waste and most of the waste occurs in agriculture so we waste a relatively minor proportion of, um, of oil seeds and pulses. Another one there with a, a weird factoid enough olive oil to fill 11,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. An enormous problem worldwide. Most of that loss in agriculture, dairy, um, and once again, this is another category where most of the loss that occurs globally, in, or at least in, uh, here in Australia um, and in the US and other developed countries, is because of consumers throwing it away at home, and this is another, one of those areas where um, best before and use by dates are an issue. I think that uh, Alex might talk about that. Uh, fish and seafood, part of the issue here with fish and seafood is that 8% of fish caught globally are thrown back into the sea. So this is off species catch, which are thrown back. And then a large part of it here in Australia um, is because it's thrown out or wasted and not eaten in the home. Meat, similarly, slightly low, uh, lower percentage globally, but once again here in Australia, um, quite a considerable proportion of this waste has to do with um, us not eating what we've purchased. And then uh, for the area that I've got some familiarity with and some expertise in is... Uh, fruit and vegetables. So as you can see here, about 50% of what we throw away from our homes is fruit and vegetables, even though fruit and vegetables comprise only 20% 20 20 of what we purchase, of the food purchases we make at the supermarket. So fruit and vegetables are disproportionately what we're throwing away once we bring that food home from the supermarket. And of course, we all know that that's because it sits in the bottom of the fridge and goes off and it looks limp and we don't use it, we don't cook it, we decide it's much easier just to bin it, it's from leftovers um, and etc. So where does the loss occur? Sorry, I'll go back a bit. There's also a considerable loss, and this is what I'll talk about now, there's considerable loss in Australia in both fruit and vegetables on farm. And we'll talk about that slightly. So, Australian horticulture, how does it work? We've got this wonderful country, and I've always known this since I was a kid, that we had this wonderful country that had this hugely varied climate and so that we could grow anything we like. 
as long as we grew it in the region where it was suited. So we can grow anything, and as you can see here on the map on the right-hand side, we do. This is where horticulture takes place in Australia, basically in the climatic zones suited to the particular crop. We get a lot of our fruit and vegetables from uh, here in Bundaberg. And so basically it's a huge industry now. And it's a huge industry with very few players, with diminishing players. There are about 200 growers Australia-wide that grow pretty much all of our fruit and vegetables. More than 80% oh, of our vegetables are grown by around 200 larger growers. And they're concentrated in the areas where those vegetables grow well. So what they do, they have huge fields, huge economies of scale because they need to, because they're supplying major chains, major supermarket chains who require large players that can deliver quantity um, and be assured that they, they can have con continuity of supply in the supermarkets. So we've got large players producing large fields of crops. Those fields of those crops get harvested, they go to pack houses locally, and then they get trucked down to the distribution centres and then eventually out to our supermarkets. So embedded in that process is lots of opportunity for waste because um, there is inevitably when you're harvesting, there are economies of scale for the growers and there need to be, but there's also the inevitable waste because when you're dealing with large numbers of produce, um, there will be waste. But there are other issues associated with it as well that are causing this waste. So the major drivers of waste, and as I say, these large growers are very, very professional and will try to always reduce waste. The main issues, the major drivers of losses before the food gets to your kitchen table. Oh, you're not giving me time? <laughs> I'm okay. The, the major drivers of losses are, as listed here, quality standards. So I think that Alex may talk about quality standards. As we know, we all still mostly purchase the best looking fruit in the supermarket on the shelf. And so what the supermarkets do is that they respond to that. We know that consumers pick over the fruit and vegetables to pick out the ones that they particularly like. And so they will put that back on their growers and say, okay, um, we only really sell these, the consumers leave these marked ones on the shelf, so therefore don't deliver us anything else but those premium quality fruit and vegetables. And then there's things like weather and, weather and disease, and for the large chains, they require that the, that the producers deliver quantity. And they, they need to be absolutely assured that they're going to deliver that quantity because they need to be on the shelves because we've become expected, we've come to expect abundance all the time on our supermarket shelves and every product we get used to purchasing um, there. And so what growers need to do, what growers need to do, I'm going to go on for about an hour and a half, Bill, is that okay? Um, I'm not doing anything tonight. <laughs> What growers need to do is to plant more in order to be assured that they're going to be able to fill their orders from the large supermarket chains. So then when they get good conditions and they get a good harvest, 
then there's a lot of product that has the potential to go to waste. And then there's a few other issues in horticulture um, that the market conditions might be not, not be right, that they might not be able to get their price and they'll leave the stuff in the field. And then, there, of course, there's things like labour shortages. And at the moment, most of the product that doesn't get sold for one of those reasons, most of the um, downgraded fruit that doesn't get sold, most of it ends up at the moment left in the field um, and, or sold to uh, alternative markets for a much reduced price. But a lot of it, and we might skip through a little bit, a lot of it um, gets left in the field because clearly there is not Fruit and vegetables here in Australia are very cheap already and there's not the market for second grade products because why would you buy a second grade product when you can get a first grade product very, very cheap already? So what happens in the field, or what happens on farm is everything goes through a pack house and it gets specced. And all of these things other than those circled there are reasons why you might not pack and you might not send to market. And many of them are just purely cosmetic. Only those circled there are those that might affect fruit quality. But we won't purchase it if it doesn't look perfect. So it doesn't get sent to market. So it does get wasted. It does get dumped out on the field or ploughed back into the, to the fields. So things like the fruit on the right there, in general, wouldn't get sent to market because it's marked. We won't purchase it. Consumers will pass it over and it will be a waste for the supermarkets. Similarly, that fruit on the right there would not go to market because we won't accept it, we won't buy it. Finally, and, and the killer for growers is this thing here, a worm on the produce. That is the absolute worst because clearly, can you see that? Clearly, the major supermarket chains, the last thing they need is for some consumer to say, Oh, there's a worm. Two minutes. There's a worm on my bok choy. <laughs> because that'll make the 7.30 news. And yes, nobody wants a worm on their bok choy, clearly. But what happens is a, some, a, a, a caseload or a pallet load of bok choy will come down from a farm from somewhere, arrive at the distribution centre, if one insect like that is found on one piece of produce, the whole load will be rejected. And things like this, other things like if, if you had some blemishes and they were above spec or out of spec for the major chains, those things um, might get rejected and go to a secondary market and in general, most of them will get sold. Insects, by contrast, the whole load will get dumped, unfortunately. So the, there is waste built into the system. As I said, I'm going to finish now, Bill, I promise. Um, as I said, the problem, one of the problems with the system is that fruit and vegetables become so cheap for us and so um, cosmetically beautiful that we're not prepared to accept second grade. And there's really a difficult to find a market for second grade produce because why would you buy second grade produce when you can buy first grade bananas for $1.99 a kilo. This might be my last slide, even though I've got several more. Um, why have we demanded 
um, such cosmetically beautiful products, why don't we, why aren't we prepared to um, take a cheaper product if it's got a mark on it? Because we don't have to in, in lots of cases, because we spend now 10.5% of our income on food. When I was younger, we were spending, families were spending about 20% of their income on food. Now we spend so little of our income on food that we don't have to look for that cheaper product. We don't have to look for that second grade product. So we always go to the first grade product, which as I've hopefully shown you, leads to waste of all that product. The final point I'd like to make is that even though we're spending less on food and we're passing with time where you think that technology would have helped us to reduce the waste in the system, that we would have worked it out. In fact, there's good data, this data here, showing that as we spend less and less of our income on food, food waste goes up and up and up at the same time. So I'll finish there. What I wanted to say in the end of this talk, if I had got to the end of this talk, and I am at the end of this talk, Bill, what I wanted to say there is that there are built in to the system as, as we have it at the moment are disincentives to purchase this product, this off-spec product. We have to start thinking about our purchases and what we're doing and the choices that we're making that are driving backwards through the system to cause the waste on farm. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. Our final speaker tonight is Alex Iaditscher. Alex is the founder of the Youth Food Movement Australia, a formidable part of the food movement spreading across the country. The Youth Food Movement is, a grow is growing a generation of young Australians empowered with the ability to make healthy and sustainable food choices. Alex splits her career between research and entrepreneurship. Over the last three years, she has grown the youth food movement into a national organisation with a community of over 7,500 young people in chapters across Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne. Most recently, she led a volunteer team in creating CropFest, a campaign and event tackling the impact that appearance standards had on generating food waste. Other projects include the Real Food Night, a night of film and conversation about the most pressing issues facing our food system, Ride on Lunch, connecting people every day with local food champions, and, this is a favourite of mine, the annual Passata Day, preserving hundreds of kilos of tomatoes um, and food skills to be enjoyed through the year. Through these projects, she is providing young people with a place to come together to find solutions and opportunities to the issues we face in the Australian food and agriculture sectors. Alexia Dietscher. So this is me about three years ago. I was just about to finish my degree in nutritional science at the University of Wollongong. I had not long started the youth food movement. My weekly shop was about 30 bucks, pretty much because I was eating like a lot of other uni students and I was eating wheat bix for breakfast, lunch and dinner. I, uh, I didn't plan my meals too much. I bought a lot of things in bulk where I could. 
I did things like get really into Asian cooking and spend my weekly budget of 30 bucks on one meal, buying like 10 sauces whose name I couldn't really pronounce and that I ended up chucking out about a year later anyway. I'm sure that's a bit of a familiar story. We all have a bottle of sauce or two <laughs> hiding in the back of our cupboards. But my actions aside, my intentions to do good with my food choices were actually quite high. Um, I was studying nutrition at uni, so I was learning all about food and our food choices and how it affects our health. Um, and I started the youth food movement and found a group of people who cared about food as much as I did. I was spending my free time reading up about food labelling and maybe the, the changes in law that you implemented, Ronnie, um, about sustainable farming practices and, and, of course, food waste. I was really ridiculously enthusiastic about food. I'd like find, found my purpose in life, similar to Ronnie. I mean, look at that enthusiasm on my face. This is why I started the youth food movement. I started, I started it because I wanted to know if my friends and my friends of friends wanted to know as much about food as I was beginning to. And turns out there are a whole bunch. We've now engaged over 9,000 people across the country. Um, and we are a volunteer-powered organisation, so this is in our spare time, in and around studying and our other jobs. Uh, we're hungry for knowledge about food. We're hungry for genuine experiences with food. And I say genuine because we are the supermarket generation. Food has always come in packets covered with the latest Disney character and the only skills you really needed to cook is to learn how to push the buttons on a microwave. Our relationship with food also doesn't make sense all that often to outsiders, case in point. We take selfies with our chicken nuggets. Thanks, Dad. We sometimes eat ourselves silly, which is pretty alarming given that where some research shows that we're set to have lower life expectancies than our parents purely because of the way we eat. And we do things like this. This is called gallon smashing. You can, um, you can Google it later. <laughs> I don't know, like, why do we do this? Why? Because it's cool, it's funny, because it's wasteful, because it's the age where we're probably buying groceries for the first time in our life. And, hey, maybe mum, we asked her a zillion times to buy chocolate milk and she never did, even though we tried to sneak it in the trolley. This is today. This was in March this year. This is at CropFest, which, as Bill said, was a uh, celebration of the whole crop, wonky and all. Um, we were trying to tackle the, uh, the impact that consumer and supermarket appearance standards have on generating food waste. We reached almost 3 million people online and about 1,000 people face-to-face -face, um, in Sydney and in Brisbane. And the ironic thing about that is... Um, that our, my generation, young adults, 18 to 35, are the biggest contributors to food waste of any other generation for some of the reasons that I rattled off before. But the flip side to that is that research shows that we care about food waste more than any other generation living right now. We also volunteer our time more than any other generation right now, and we, care, we get behind environmental causes more than any other generation. So, as I see it, we care, but there's just... We don't always act on our intention, and, and this is exactly, for me, as I see it, where the opportunity lies. Bridging the gap between passion, intention, and action is exactly what needs to happen if, with young adults if we're to do something about food waste.
hands up if you know who this guy is. Yeah. All right. So this is Captain Planet, and he is, uh, as I've recently discovered, a hidden reason why I care about food waste so much. Who'd have thought? Captain Planet, he's our hero, going to take pollution down to zero. That's the theme song. I know it's really cheesy, but he's kind of right on the money. For those of you in the audience who haven't been so enlightened with Captain Planet and his greatness, I'm going to show you a clip now. Uh, this aired about 20 years ago, um, in about 1992. I was in primary school when I saw this. It continued to air. I think you can still even watch it on um, Cartoon Network. This is an episode called The Garbage Strikes, of any of you who you know, get a real good fix of this and want to watch the whole episode later. Hey, a letter. Who's sending me a letter? I only read junk mail. Dear Mr. Sludge, you seem to be unaware that sludge is actually treated sewage, which helps fertilize crops. I hate those sewage treatment guys. They're giving sludge a good name. Ah, let's see what's on TV. Too mushy. Too violent. An oil spill. Now that's what television is all about. Sure, the oil spill endangers the shore, no? I place one tiny drop of my oil-eating microbe on the oil. Watch closely with the camera. Wait a minute, go, Dr. Helix. Oh, such a genius. I would love to meet him. Your genius is getting his feet wet. While you are coming up with wisecracks, Dr. Helix is inventing things that will end pollution. I wish I had your faith in technology, Key. But so far, science has found no cure for the real problem, wastefulness. Kwame may be right, Key. Are you against science, Gaia? No, but we can't always count on quick fixes. I'm sure that sounds a little bit like conversations that we're still having right now, but I just, I just think it was crazy that... We talk about this stuff when we're, you know, I was listening to these messages when I was, you know, somewhere between five and ten, and they mimic a lot of the conversations we still have. Um, I had a look at all of the episodes. Um, in episode 58, it talked about... <laughs> I really like this show, all right? <laughs> but in episode... It astounded me how many episodes talked about waste in a way that we talk about it right now. In episode 58, they talked about land grabs and urban development and encroachment on agricultural land. In episode 37, we were introduced to an illiterate farmer who overused pesticides, so we've got social just justice. In episode 83, we um, learned about unsustainable farming practices. <laughs> and look, I have a huge list that I can talk to you about right now, but overall, there was, throughout the six seasons of Captain Planet, an overarching message that... Uh, waste and pollution is a problem, but there was always continual reinforcement that you as an individual can totally do something about it. Aussie kids, we would come home from school, we'd watch this show, we'd lap it up, um, and it's still loved. There's a Captain Planet Foundation as well that also supports education. <laughs> I should be touting the youth food movement and not some other foundation, but hey, follow it if you love it. Um, and I guess you could say... We've been talking about this stuff for the last 20 years and maybe we just didn't know it. All those people who had their hands up before, I'm not too sure if you've made the connection between your after-school TV addiction and your adult beliefs and behaviours, but maybe it isn't so surprising that people our age care so much about this stuff. 
The gap between passion, intention and action is exactly the gap that the youth food movement is trying to fill with each of our projects. Our mission is to grow a generation of young Aussies who have the capacity to do more with their food choices and who can create a food system that is healthy and secure. CropFest is one of our latest examples of this and is about celebrating the whole crop, wonky and all. Um, it's about getting our hands dirty uh, to do something about food waste. When Joe and I were first researching this, Joe's sitting in the audience, she's the YFM's other co-founder, um, we started reading about appearance standards uh, and we, you know, the, a cucumber has to be so long and, you know, Brian's explained it all. And we thought, this is ridiculous. How on earth does this even exist? We read that one in three bananas can't be sold whole because the flesh is fine but the skin is blemished. Like, that is crazy. Um, but as we dug a little further, we realised that, and much to what... Brian has said that uh, these standards exist simply because everyday folk like us are really performing horticultural discrimination. We really only buy what's perfect. <coughs> this is CropFest. Um, in a nutshell, we worked with about six farmers. We got half a tonne of produce in Sydney alone. We brought it in. We had workshops, talks, movie screenings. Um, we turned... We ate 200 kilos of that on the night, 150 kilos we made into meals and thanks to Ronnie was able to be distributed through her charity networks and 150 kilos went to an organic waste recycler and turned into fertiliser. So why was it so successful? I mean, this is food waste, it's not the most sexy of topics and Captain Planet wasn't right there. Some of the things that we did, and I guess, Brian, this is a way that we incentivised it, was we made it fun. Like, there was an air of optimism at the event. There was this feeling of, I can totally do something about this. I can be a part of the solution. There was no blame. There was no finger pointing. You didn't get, you know, drowned in the problem. We gave people skills. Our pre-event research showed that the main reason why people didn't buy wonky fruit and veg was because they thought it was poisonous. So we gave people a chance to touch it. Yeah, I know, crazy. We gave people a chance to touch it and cook with it and realise that it is no different to any other piece of produce and we settled some of those fears. And most importantly, it was us teaching ourselves. It was friend to friend, mate to mate. There have been a ton of studies that show that the most powerful influences in young people's lives are our friends. And if we want young people to change and reduce their food waste, the messages need to come from ourselves. Bridging the gap is something we can all to do and work toward together. To do this, we need solid research, we need an environment that is conducive to behaviour change and we need investment of young people at all levels. If you're a researcher sitting in the room, Bill, Brian, I'm talking to you, let's work together at finding out what are the most effective activities at bridging this gap between intention and action. Being, being a young adult in this space has the wonderful advantage of saying, I don't have all the answers, I know you have some answers, so please give them to me and let's do something with them. If you're a retailer, take a leaf out of Intermarché's book. Uh, it was a campaign that's gone around social media about wonky fruit and veg, a retailer in France. Um, our research uh, as part of CropFest showed that some 92% of people thought that uh, cosmetic waste was a huge problem, but only 14% of people actually bought misshapen produce. This gap attests the divide between value and action, and it also attests to a lack of access to ugly produce. 
Let's have a place to send people who want to buy this stuff. You can't always get it in a supermarket. And let's have a chat about how we can get more young people acting on their intentions right at the point where they buy their food. If you're a producer or a processor, let's make it visible. We get upset at our local supermarket for throwing out food waste at the end of the day because this is waste that we can visualise. Much of the cosmetic waste is invisible and goes unmeasured. It's left on the crop. Which begs the question, if we can't see, see something, does it mean it's not a problem? If you're a student, get in touch, join the movement. Let's share your ideas with us, let's create something together. If you're doing a PhD, share your research with us and we can share it with interested ears. If you're from the government or an NGO or you're a parent, keep supporting us to do what we do and trust that we can help ourselves. The old messages haven't and won't work on young people because we make our choices based on a different set of standards to average households. And I just wanted to finish with a shot taken from our uh, third birthday celebration, which was last month, um, with a quote from a fellow Sydney cider who came along um, to our Real Food Night event last November, and they said, I think action starts with an idea, so thank you for planting that seed. I feel ready and excited to go home and work on our veggie patch and think about the choices I make. Smiley face, smiley face, love heart, love heart. Thank you.